but you have to be confident and you have to be confident in what you do and be able to communicate that to the, to the athletes so that they can go out and win. Mm. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I am your host, Richard Thompson. Today, we have Stan Garland on the show. He is a, an Olympic level physiotherapist. He has been my physio for the last two years and truly someone who I, I can't explain the wealth of experience and his ability in a treatment room for his athletes is second to none. He's gone to three Olympics, countless world championships, World Cups all over the world. He's worked with gold medalists, Adam Mears and Sally Pearson, and he's just had this incredible career. And I wanted to get him in to the studio and talk about all of that and his lessons from that as well. So sit back, enjoy Stan. And if you do enjoy this episode or any of the episodes that Cody and I put together, we'd love it if you could please rate or review wherever you listen to the podcast. But for now... Here is Stan Garland. Stan Garland, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rajit. I remember when you came to the coast and I was training for Ultraman and someone said, and I was looking for a physio because I had my own deficiencies. And someone said, "You've re actually two people said, Stan Garland's now arrived on the coast. You need to see him. Mm -hmm. And um, then I went and saw you. I think it was, I don't know when I was first, whether it was your house or otherwise, but I've never been with a physio that comes close to what you're able to do. Um, so I'm so lucky to have you in my corner and have had have had in my corner for my athletic time. But I wanted to, so I wanted to get you in to talk about your methodologies and the, why you got into it. But for a little background as well, you've been to three Olympic games as an Olympic physio to the to athletes like Anna Mears, Sally Pearson, both for cycling and for track running. And so I don't think there's anyone who would be more equipped to talk about what you learned from that experience and what you learned from those sort of athletes who are, are easily the world's best at what they do. And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Sure. Um, and thank you for spending a little bit of time. No problems. So how did you get into it? Into Olympics or? Into physio initially. Into physio. Well, I mean, I was an aspiring tennis player back in the day and um, – Probably got to the point at about 16 years old where I realised I wasn't at the level that was going to make a career out of it. And, uh, you know, it's a time when you need to decide what your future occupation is going to be. And at that time, probably modern physio was just evolving. So that's in the mid-80s, early 80s. And uh, I decided to put my head in the books and... Actually, was what I just watched the rugby this morning, Rugby World Cup. I used to watch um, the, the Wallabies physio running out onto the field thinking, well, oh, that'd be a pretty cool job. Um, I've had no aspirations to become a GP. I didn't want to hand out pills and have sick people in my rooms all the time. I thought, well, this is the way to do it, mm. get the sport fixed and take it to a new level. So um, at that stage, I wasn't even aware that physios worked in hospitals, let alone with kids and obs and gynae and neurology and all the weird things, my focus was on sports physio. Mm. And so I turned up at the physio course day one and they promptly said, well, we're going to take you for a tour through the hospital. And I looked sideways and went, what? What are we doing here? Where so, are the athletes? Yeah. So <laughs> I had, I was <laughs> probably a bit naive, 
Um, but that was my focus right through the course, so four years of study. And uh, back then, the um, most people were obliged to do a year's rotation in a hospital. And uh, myself and what, who became my first partner decided, well, we don't want to do that. We just want to go straight out into private practice. So that's what we did. So pretty quickly in at about 22 years of age, I was a, I had my own practice with, with my partner and it was... I don't know, it was a baptism of fire because we had to learn pretty quickly and we were inexperienced. So a lot of those times it wasn't Google, there wasn't things to, to look at. Mm. So I'd come home after seeing people and sort of go, well, what do I do with this fellow? And I'd be going to the books and just I suppose that's been the focus of my career is making people better as quickly as I could. And so even in that in that realm now, when I have a student perhaps sitting with me, I go, well, you listen to the patient, you do an examination and you try and make that person leave better than when they walked in. So it might be in the way you communicate. Hopefully it's in the hand-on treatment that you give them. In some way they're enlightened and better for when they leave your rooms. So that started back in the day when I had to was under pressure as a fairly fresh new graduate. Mm. So it's just come from there. And my passion for sport and developed that sort of pathway. So I got involved in whatever I could. You can't just become an Olympic physio with no experience. You have to do your time. So my time was in football clubs and cricket clubs. I got involved through connections into pro running. And um, I think that, you know, I just had a passion for knowledge. I just wanted to learn and, and do new things. So I got to a point, I split off from my partner. I was a solo practitioner I was working after hours, three nights a week with a local football team all day Saturday and I just thought, well, I'm not learning here and I'm not getting the experience that I need to get better. Mm. So I made the call when there was a a big shortage of of good physios in America um, and they were paying your way to go over, come over, we'll put you up for a job, we'll pay your relocation costs. I thought, well, this is an opportunity. So at that stage I was married with two young kids, uh, 32 and I packed up, shipped off to America for four years. And uh, I just wanted to be involved in American sports, so yeah, baseball, American football. And went to work in a clinic that wasn't, they promised that, but didn't deliver. And in that time, it was like, well, I've moved my family here. I'm not getting the experience. But in that time, um, I'd made an impression on a couple of the local uh, physical medicine specialists. And one of those guys said, look, we're setting up a spinal rehab unit and we'd really like you to be involved because you've got some skills that our local guys don't have so I waited around for a year while that was being developed and then worked side by side with him and two or three spinal surgeons was the experience like that and so that was that set me off in another world because I'd always worked by myself um I was around other physios but Um, It was very disjointed back in the day in Australia. So your doctors worked in one clinic, physios were in another, orthopaedics was in another, and the communication lines were a bit strained. Mm. So I moved to America and I worked in a clinic where everyone was under one roof and I really loved it. So, I mean, a two-year experience became four and I had two more kids that were young Americans then and we decided as a family that we were going to move back to Australia when the oldest was due to start school. Mm -hmm. So... I went, thanks very much, time for me to go home. So I came home and... Were you still doing sport, physio? Well, I got involved with a AAA baseball team and uh, that's after whinging to to one of my bosses and I also covered the professional bull riding for a couple of years. Perfect. 
don't know how that equates to it, but <laughs> I said sports then. Well, they call it a sport, but, yeah, you know, sure, like sure. some cowboy would get kicked in the chest by a big bull and I'd run out and go, how are you going, mate? And they'd cough and splutter. And It's not exactly the, <laughs> the physio running out of the Wallabies game, is it? Not quite, not quite. <laughs> but uh, it's all experience, I suppose. Sure, sure. So you came home. But I came home and then I was in a quandary because I'm going, well, I, I really don't want to be the, the solo physio on the corner. Yeah. Because I'd enjoyed my experience in the States uh, working you like with specialists and being mm. part of a team mm. um, and just having that professional banter. And it was great for the patients because if there was an issue, I could you know, put a fire out quickly or I could order an injection through a doctor or a scan or yeah. uh, I just enjoyed that. So... In the meantime, Adelaide had developed what, what is still now, 30-odd years later, one of the premier sp uh, sports clinics in Australia. And I, was, I had a bit of respect before I'd left, so I went to one of the key physios in there and said, hey, look, you know, I'm back. I'm looking for a job. Mm. Um, and then at that point, they were looking at a succession plan and looking to bring on some young physios. So he said, well, it's good timing. Uh, and I went to him with an option saying, well, you know, I'd like to open a satellite of your clinic. And they said, well, that'd be great. So I ended up buying in for what at that day, in that day was big dollars. Mm. And I thought, well, if I'm going to stay here for 10 years plus, it's a worthwhile expense for me for the referral base, for the connection with the surgeons, for a whole range of things. So yeah. pretty well bought in and didn't look back. So I became a partner and I spent 20-something years there before deciding to come up here. And those connections led to involvement with the Australian track cycling team through doctors that were involved and I spent two years in the, the first two years with Adelaide United in the soccer as their treating physio so I did a few things mm. until the Olympic sort of option opened up. So you came back <coughs> rewind a little bit that would have been was what, 2000 I came back from America but the decision to put a hefty amount for a buy-in was, that, that, was that a was that a was that a Difficult decision or because of the unknown or how did you go about making that decision? It was difficult because at the time, um, I mean, I sold my practice for $5,000. Mm. So basically it was the goodwill is worth nothing when the person leaves, sure. you know, it's the cost of your equipment. So back then I bought in for something like $120,000. So that was in the year 2000, which mm. was a lot of money. So you think, well, I had to make a call because I'm going, well, I can't see another physio coming in and buying my share. Um, I'm going to diffuse that 120 grand over 10 years. Is yep. it worth, you know, 10, 12 grand a year, year for the, the experience and opportunity to work there? And I went, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, at the end of the day, 20 years on, I was able to sell my share. And, and you look back and go, that was really it was a, a good really decision. decision. Yep. But back then it was difficult. So Did you lose much sleep over it or you? Uh, well, yes, I did because I had a young family. I didn't have a lot of coin. It was a lot of money. and yeah. But... The upside of it and the doors that it opened. Yeah, you didn't um, know that at the time. I didn't know it, no. Yeah. Do you look back and, like, what would, would you have told yourself anything different? But you, you took that chance anyway, right? Took the chance, yeah. Um, and it was working with the best surgeons, the best doctors and the best physios that were in the city mm. at the time. So I'm sure I could have gone out and been a solo practitioner, but practitioner, but in the, let's say, 10 years after that, then you saw the pressure on solo practitioners and the sort of healthcare models changed a little bit, at least in Adelaide. It's, mm. it's probably not like that up here, which is what I've noticed in the two years. That I've yeah, right. And then how did the introduction to the Australian track cycling team and the Olympic door opening, 
Talk to me yeah, well, that. I said I was involved with soccer and football and then one of the key GPs for the cycling team was in our clinic and the physio at that time moved on to rowing and that door opened up. So I was an avid triathlete. Um, you know, I was well known in the clinic. I enjoyed the bikes and the running and yeah. all the rest of it. So he came to me and said, how would you like to come and work with the cycling team? So I got a hand up through him, mm-hmm. Dr Peter Barnes. And I was excited. I thought, wow, this is another level. This is what I've wanted to do for Move over bull 15 fighting. years. So, you know, 15 years of physio before that door opened. But yeah. I've done a lot of yeah. work to get to that point. Um, and I came, became involved, but then I realised that cycling back then was still old school. So these cycling teams revolved around, or their healthcare involved around us one year. Mm. The doctor was there and a very good doctor, but the, the physical care... It's all the swanny. Was just a swanny doing massages and really not doing much of anything. So right. I used to get calls from the AIS. So the track program was based in Adelaide. Hmm. And I'd get calls from the head physio in Canberra saying, we want physical screens of all our athletes. So the first year I did it and they would take me a couple of hours to do collate, report, and I'd do a you know, flexibility, muscle hmm. testing, range of motion. I'd have them bring their bikes in and I'd do a physio screen of them on the bikes and I'd feed all that information back to Canberra. It went to the coaches, but the coaches didn't really know what to do with it because their experience was dealing with a swanee. And, you know, one year in, I went to the to the coach, it was a Canadian fella, and I said, look, you know, I'm doing all these things. I'm not quite sure if you really understand what a physical screen is, but what, how, what benefit it can be to you as a coach, let alone the strength and conditioning component to the program. So I go, we... Um, if we do it correctly, my information should go back to the strength and conditioning guy and then everyone has a specific area that they'll need to work on. Some people, it's flexibility in the hips, some it's basic strength. But at the end of the day, if we can stop particularly the overuse injuries in the sport, then we keep people training and the programs can progress. And in the end, I got involved with with that. I got involved with aerodynamics and just getting people's bodies set up into the program. So... I kind of pushed that button and that allowed me to have more contact with strength and conditioning and then the programming through the coaches actually changed and it's become more of what modern physiotherapy is now. So it's more performance-based injury prevention and obviously we treat the injuries when sure. they come along but we kept data of that and showed that the percentage of injuries dropped significantly. By focusing on injury prevention. And by using the screens mm. effectively. So mm. I'd have a list if someone came into the program, there might be 20 points on that that I'd pick up in a screen. And then we do mini screens along the way. three months, six months, and then they do a full screen every year. By the second or third year of that program, we had these key factors of attention down to a handful of points. Yeah, right. So that was documented. That's cool. And... Um, then physio became an important part of the program. Yeah. And then what was it like? So Anim, you, your direct work with Anna Mears, multiple world, uh, multiple world champion and gold medalist, mm-hmm. what was that like? Were you dealing with a lot of high-performing athletes? Are there, well, there and it ones? was new for me. So I'd come out of team sports effectively through mm-hmm. football and soccer. Anna had just come into the program. So she was one of the first ones that I screened at 21 years of age. I was the treating physio, so I worked in the program, but I still ran my clinic so the athletes would come and see me. Yeah. And so, you know, you develop a rapport with those people over time, go to competitions, World Cups, and you become... Um, 
someone that they would rely on under pressure, I suppose. So mm. I enjoyed that and they obviously had some faith in me and so that report for her was right through her career until she finished after 2016 in Rio. Mm. So, yeah. Nothing that you could see that's stood her apart from other high performers that maybe didn't get to her level? Well, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be involved with athletics too along the way and then married the two sports and somehow ended up looking after Sally Pearson. So at the same time, I, I went to London Olympics, did the first week with track and field, uh, sorry, with track cycling, and the second week with track and field yeah, and right. just moved camps. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's cool. But those, if you take those two girls and I've followed them through, you know, both of them for 10 years of their career, yeah. similar animals. I had the weight of pressure on them. Mm. And Australia is good at loading up their gold medal talents with extra pressure, and both those girls um, could handle it and come through with the goods. How do you think, so Sally, for those who don't know, Sally's a 100-metre hurdlist, mm. the females, gold medalist. How how do they? How did you see that they work through that pressure? Because I couldn't imagine when you get a chance, for Olympic sports, especially when you're a gold medal favourite, you get one mm. try, well, heat semi-final, you have three opportunities to stuff that up every four years. Yeah. And it's not like you're, you're ranked number one, so you're in the final. You've got to make sure you don't stuff it up on the heats and stuff it up in the semis. But yeah. then on the final comes, <clears throat> this is it for four years. It's not, world, it's not a World Cup. It's not a World Championship. Mm. How do you – did you see anything – and you're there as well, presumably the morning of the final, working on her, looking – you know, what did you take away from all that? Well, I saw – if I take – Probably worked one-on-one -on -one more with Sally because mm. I used to, in the end, I mean, she, she had a bad back, like a disky back. That, and a she, disky back. That's the... As a hurdler, it's not, not ideal. That's the medical term, yeah. disky back? Disky back. So, yeah, <laughs> degenerative disc. Um, and that was around the World Champs 2009. Mm. So I was, a you know, an underling physio at that point and she was a super, an emerging superstar um, and I sat in the background as when well, I had a forte in back management from having done work in America for the best part of four years. And I'm not the most forthright person, so I probably stood back in the wing. I did stand back in the wings, and she's quite reserved and quiet behind the scenes. And so I let the other physios do their thing and blow lots of smoke. And I came in at the end and did some things to her that, were perhaps a little bit different, Not, nothing outrageous, but she liked it. And whether it was maybe the next year, I got a phone call sitting in my office in Adelaide from her going, hey, it's me, um, just wondered whether you'd be interested in coming to Europe in July for six weeks because I'm doing the Diamond League circuit and I need a physio. Mm. And uh, I always made a pact with myself with that. So whenever I was invited to stuff and because I was a, a partner, I could leave, yep. but I went. So mm. that relationship developed and probably just became her um, like a positive influence behind the scenes for her. So it, one of her things, I suppose, behind the scenes was, well, you know, she had an ugly back and, oh, my hamstring and I do all the fine-tuning and a lot of that was just verbal stuff going, well, no, Sally, this is good and that's good and your body's fine and you'll yeah. be fine. And I can remember before she went out to win the gold medal in London, we were under the wings doing run-throughs and she was coming in between. The night of the final. Before the war, in the warm-up. Right. Quizzing me about her hamstring, my hamstring. I feel my hamstring. And I remember sitting there with her husband going, I've checked it, double-checked it, triple-checked it. There's nothing wrong She's with it. She's fine. <laughs> and I'm de delivering that message to her. And I can remember saying to him, geez, I 
glad I, I hope I've got this right because yeah, she doesn't have now. I mean, <laughs> it might have been in one of the one of the heats, so okay. I can't remember. But it uh, was it was a pressure moment. Um, but a lot of it with those people in that situation is to try and be, or you have to be confident, and you have to be confident in what you do and be able to communicate that to them to the athletes so that they can go out and win. Mm. And Sally was was one of the the best at coming up with the goods in the heat of the moment. So she would go at least one of those goals as not being favourite and line up in the final and just put it together. Flawless technique, determination and willpower mm. and come up with I mean, and Amir's similar thing. So she broke her neck, which has been in all the press and famous for it. And that was in a, a, a World Cup race in America in, let's say, January, I reckon it was before the Be- uh, Beijing Olympics. And I was home, I wasn't there. I got the call from the doctor that was there saying, we're bringing her home. And um, I remember seeing her uh, just banged up, she had a broken collarbone, she'd fractured her C2 in her neck. And her focus was on getting to Beijing. So with a high fracture in the Six neck- Six or seven months later. You run the risk of they, they can kill you. You can't yeah. breathe if it, if it severs your spinal cord. So we treated her with kid gloves, but she didn't want to detrain. So there was pressure on January, February. And I remember going to a coach when we first put her on the track bike and she basically had the track to herself. And I can remember saying to the mechanic, like, you put new tyres on that thing and you make sure she doesn't get a flat because if she falls off and hits her head, we're in trouble. <laughs> so she was tough enough to go through all of that. Qualified, went to Beijing, came out with a silver medal, which was worth gold as far as everyone else concerned. Yeah, so that was a gutsy effort. That's incredible. Mm. And where do you think, um, where do you think athletes can? You'll see other athletes as well, obviously not just the the top of the top of the tree. But where do you think is it? Where do you think they fall down on and being able to reach that the very top echelon of performance? Do you think it is a confidence issue? Do you think why do you think some some achieve and some don't? Well, at the end of the day, it's it's in the grey matter, isn't it, off the person. So when I can't run the race for them, I can't sit on the bike, all I can do is get my body prepared to go. Then the coaches, the psychologists, everyone else have input into that, but it's in that person. They've just got to want it, Yeah, I think. So you've been on the coast now for a couple of years, seeing athletes, seeing medical patients as well. Well, I've probably gone under the radar a bit. So mm. you're, was, Again, you're reserved. I was pretty burnt out leaving Adelaide, so I failed marriage and I had I was working big hours and I just thought I can't do this mm. and stay in a partnership with nine partners just at the coalface all the time so I thought I could have stayed there that was fine but I, I felt like I wanted to be a physio for another 10-15 years at least mm. but I needed to just calm down a little bit and having worked with Sally for 10 plus years I was regularly in Queensland and I thought you know, I'd like to move to the sunshine and just, I, I was a, you know, keen cyclist, runner, um, environmental issues. I thought the opportunity hmm. was now. So I had four months off, um, chilled out a little bit and, and I was still travelling. So the last two years up until the uh, Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, then I decided, well, I can't keep going away for three months of the year, just two weeks out, three weeks out, come back, work for two, go away. No one knows me you're on the coast. It's time to get serious. Yeah. So it's pretty well what I'm doing now. So it's just trying to get the connections up, um, and I want to be involved in a multidisciplinary clinic and in the same vein as what, as what I've done. Yeah. So 
You know, the that's last where two the years, comes from. yeah, I've worked with an orthopedic surgeon and that's good, but I realise I, I need some GPs around me and I'd like to work with some other physios and I have a little bit of knowledge. So the other thing is speaking to some of the, the high flyers on the coast is like my value here is to be involved in a bigger clinic mm. and probably take on some new graduates two, three years out and, and mentor them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd like to do in the next 10 years. And then, you know, obviously I like the hands-on work, but I'm canning the travel, I'm canning the elite level. But so you're not going to Paris? No. No, so I just want to see, I want to see some young people being able to deliver the skills because I see the training, particularly in the hands-on and manual area, as mm. falling to the wayside a little bit. And that's just on the weight of numbers and not having the experience to be able to treat and to get uh, mentorship from good practitioners. So the people that are going to be good from here on out are going to be people that take on skills and learn from experienced people. Well, they're in good hands because, as I said, I've never I've been through a thousand of physios and I've never never had it hasn't even come close to what you offer. So they're in good hands. Let's do it, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we go, we do the five quick fire questions. So uh, number one tip, Stan Garland, for people wanting to be more successful in their life. If I look back on my career, I'm thinking um, you need to listen. You need to listen and you need to be a good communicator. Um, and in my area, particularly as a physio, you need to be objective. So I see people... Not being objective. And that objective means you do something, you test, you retest, you see what you've done, whether it's been successful or not. And if it doesn't, you change it and you continually reevaluate. Uh, number one tip for people wanting to find more happiness in their life? Probably what I've learned over the time is to be humble, to have some humility, to continue to learn, um, and don't, think, don't take things for granted. The people that love you, your friends, your family, the connections that you have, take it for granted. I love that. Um, number one book, gifted or? Well, I was tell, talking to you about that the other day. I'm reading a book at the moment by Dan Carter. Mm-hmm. He was the number 10 Fly half for all blacks. blacks for years with a win-loss ratio of 90-odd percent in the games that he played. Untouchable. Mm. But his book, um, I suppose he, he, he documents it on how he prepared himself for games. So he would, he would sit there weekly on a Sunday and reevaluate his week and set goals for the following week. He'd sit down the following Sunday and he'd tick boxes on what he'd accomplished and what he hadn't and why he hadn't it. So he was big on preparation. I like that. He hit little goals. Um, He talks about humility and being humble. He talks about the team being more important than the individual. Mm. And his ultimate goal was to be one of the best All Blacks of all time, which meant that he had to be involved in a winning All Black team. team. Just about everything that I've read through his book, I can apply to my career mm. and it's applicable to to me. Mm. So I definitely recommend that book. And I like that idea of, I think a lot of people, including myself, will get to a Sunday and go, okay, well, this is what we need to achieve for the next week. This is the, these are the goals, right? Mm. This is what even to a level of going, saying, if I achieve this, it'll be a successful week. But I don't, and I can't speak for everyone, but I don't necessarily look back in the last week and mm. think, what are the wins, what are the losses, and what are the improvements? Because it's a data point, right? Yeah. It's to go, okay, It's I've had seven days, let's call it that, of raw data to be able to evaluate why didn't things go the way that I wanted them to go in certain areas mm. and learn. Mm. to. Re- it's almost like machine learning but for myself yeah. to then make it into those lessons and you're sort of almost creating yourself as a superhuman mm. by just learning, by reflecting, yeah. which I don't think 
I don't, I don't do. I'm like, well, that's a write off. No, and I don't do it myself, but I read it and it hits home. And mm. I go, this guy Shit. is so disciplined and and not a big head. So he acknowledges the fact that the individual can't, he can't be a superstar and be in a good team. He's got to be part of a cog, and his role in that cog is to be whatever he decides is mm. going to make the best fly half. Yeah. Mm like that uh, most influential person in your life Stan well it's an interesting question so when, when you cued me on that one I, uh, I thought back on it and I'd have to say it was a fellow called Dr Greg Keane who's just recently retired at 73 as uh, one of the leading knee surgeons in Australia um, he was the influential man in setting up the model of sports med in Adelaide okay so back in the day and he was a high flyer he didn't need to do it he got together with two or three other surgeons, the leading sports doctors and the leading physios and went, how can we make what we do better? Mm. And he brought the idea of that model with these key practitioners into being and that clinic has just gone from strength to strength. And that's the clinic that I bought into yeah. and I had no desire to leave up until yeah, after 20-odd years. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, change. I look back on it and I go, and particularly moving up here and just seeing that the health model is working like what I experienced in 1989 before I, before this clinic evolved. I'm going, it's not rocket science. It's mm. just basic. Interesting. But you have to get the high flyers to park their egos and be willing to work in a team environment. Mm. And then everyone wins. Not siloed. No. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, and finally, a guest, famous or otherwise, that you think we should have on the show? Well, I've got connections with Sally Pearson. I think she'd be. All right. Be good. That sounds good. She's a Queenslander. She's a Queenslander and she's passionate about these sorts of things and um, is good at promoting herself. But as I said, as, as someone with guts and determination and obviously the talent but could deliver when the chips were down. Yeah. So. All right. Sounds good. Very good. Stan Garland, um, watch this space, man. I think what, what you're trying to achieve here on the coast to mimic what you guys had in Adelaide is going to be changing life, you know, a community environment changing, especially with the Olympics mm. coming to the region in Exciting. 2032. So it's needed mm. and you're a pioneer, at least in this area. So it's a pleasure to have you on and thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks, mate. That was Stan Garland, an absolute legend of a guy and such a wealth of experience when it comes to physio and all things high-performance athletes that he's worked with as well. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with someone that you think will take something out of it as well. And uh, until next time, peace.